You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is Psalm 59, beginning in verse 1. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a victim of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Selah. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision, O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Spirit of God. So I caught an article, uh, or I saw an article that caught my eye recently, and it was titled this. Go ahead. Pray for Putin's demise. Mm, I'm listening. Okay, so I'm going to read the article. That's clickbait, if you ask me. And so I'm reading through this article, and Tish Harrison Warren said, you know, I saw an image last week that I cannot shake. It's a Ukrainian father gripping the face of his young son's lifeless body, which is entirely covered in a blood-stained sheet except for the halo of blonde hair. This grief-stricken father presses his face against his son's hair, clinging to him, desperate and broken. I close my eyes and I pray and I see this image. When I think of it, she said, I'm heartbroken. But I also feel angry. I brush up against something like a maternal sense of rage. An innocent child was violently killed because because Russia's leader decided he wanted a neighboring sovereign country as his own. The violence in Ukraine makes me, like many of us, feel powerless. I watch helplessly as tanks roll into cities, as civilian targets are shelled, as the lives of whole families are viciously snuffed out. 
And she asked this question, what do I do with this anger and heartbreak? And that was her answer. Go ahead. Pray for Putin's demise. I wonder if anyone's prayed for Putin's demise here. This Lenten season, we're focusing on prayer and how we as Christians and Christians throughout time have been shaped and formed through it. And what we're doing is we're looking at these various psalms that expand our prayer lives, giving us language to express our hearts to God in honest and authentic ways in every circumstance of life. Psalms like the one that we're looking at this afternoon, if you can believe it or not, are holy words that we can pray as individuals and as a congregation when we have been personally wronged by evil or when we are angered at evil being carried out upon other people. These are what are known as imprecatory prayers or songs of vengeance. And believe it or not, there are a lot of psalms of vengeance. Some estimate that there's nearly two, or, yeah, two dozen psalms of vengeance or imprecatory psalms in the Psalter in the Bible. What is an imprecatory psalm? It is a psalm that calls down destruction and judgment on those who, quote, treacherously plot evil. Prayers that I believe that we're not just allowed to pray. It's not like God saying, well, I guess I know you're going to get angry, so here's some like allowances, here's some prayers that you can pray to kind of vent your anger. No, I believe that these are prayers that our, we are responsible to pray. God has called us to pray these prayers at the appropriate time. Now, there are two things that we are tempted to do when we or other people are wronged. The first, and I think probably the most natural thing that we do, is we take matters into our own hands. We're offended, we're wronged, we see something that bothers us or frustrates us or angers us, and so we think that we are wise enough and we are strong enough to do something about it. So we get even, we fight back, we seek revenge. Or another way that we respond is we turn a blind eye. We don't know how to process our anger. We don't know how to process our emotions. We don't know how to process what's going on in the world. So we just sort of sweep it under the rug. I guess it is what it is. I don't know. On one hand, retaliation. On the other hand, indifference. But the Bible, however, gives us an entirely different and better way, and it's right before us on the pages of the Psalms in Psalm 59. The better way, the biblical way, is to entrust it to the justice of God, to call upon God to avenge. Now some today are gonna to object. I know, already, this is happening. Some today are gonna to object to prayers like this for various reasons. Some are gonna say, you know what, that's an Old Testament thing. We are, we are New Testament believers who've been called to love our enemies. God is a God of love. Jesus came as sort of like God's PR guy, you know, all that Old Testament stuff. Jesus did away with all that revenge stuff. We are New Testament Christians. Okay. Romans 12 in the New Testament. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. So you got that part right. Well, what do we do then? But leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And by doing so, you will be heaping burning coals upon his head. Isn't that interesting? That we as Christians can hold both intention. We can call upon God for his vengeance. At the very same time, as loving and blessing our enemies. There's a sermon for another day. That may be the theological objection, but other people may just have an emotional, sort of experiential uh, objection. Others may just say, you know what? This kind of image of God makes me uncomfortable. Uh, I don't know if I signed up for this sort of Christianity. I don't like to think of God that way. I like to think of God as loving and caring and like he's just one big warm hug of mercy. Ah, this makes me uncomfortable. A few years ago, an artist who is also a believer was being interviewed for a radio podcast show. And he was being questioned by the hosts about his faith. And they were challenging him for believing in a God who was associated with the destruction of various nations in the Old Testament. And they were like, how can you believe in a God like that? How can you believe in a God that would punish whole nations like that? And the person being interviewed responded and said, that's because you have never been a part of an oppressed people. That's a privileged question. It's those who identify with the dominant culture that will find it very difficult to worship a God of vengeance. That probably explains why you're like, oh, I don't like this kind of God. But those who are within an oppressed people group, which is a large portion of our globe even today, the powerless, the vulnerable, the hurt, the oppressed, those who are on that side of injustice could not even imagine worshiping a God who did not take vengeance on behalf of the vulnerable, who want nothing to do with just some big cosmic warm hug. We think a loving God could never avenge. The psalmist says the opposite, because of your love you avenge. Three times the psalmist calls out God as being a God of steadfast love who avenges his people. Fleming Rutledge said it makes people queasy nowadays to talk about the wrath of God, but there could be no turning away from this prominent biblical theme. Oppressed peoples from around the world have been empowered by the scriptural picture of a God who is angered by injustice and unrighteousness. If we are resistant to the idea of the wrath of God, we might pause to reflect the next time that we are outraged by something about our property values being threatened. Ah, God forbid. Or our children's educational opportunities being limited. Or our tax breaks being eliminated. All of us are capable of anger about something. God's anger, she says, however, is pure. It doesn't have the maintenance of privilege as its object, but goes out on behalf of those who have no privileges. The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God has temper tantrums. No, it's a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and his coming to set matters right. That was a mouthful. 
But that statement right there gets to the heart of imprecatory psalms like the one that we're looking at this afternoon. One, recognizing that God is just and he's loving, recognizing that God is angered by injustice and then calling upon him to set matters right. And this psalm, specifically Psalm 59, I believe, is inviting us to listen this afternoon. And we have to tune our ears to listen very uh, intentionally because there are three sounds that God is inviting us to hear. The first is howling, the second is laughing, and the third is singing. So let's look first at howling. You still with me this afternoon? I knew I'd get some sort of uncomfortable looks at me uh, teaching through an imprecatory psalm, but I'm going to need you with me on this one. So let's look first at howling. Now look at the, the header of this psalm above verse 1. What we're told is that this psalm is, when, is written after Saul sent men to watch his, speaking of David's house, in order to what? Kill him. No big deal, except for people are trying to kill him. So this psalm is referring to a time in 1 Samuel chapter 19 when King Saul, who was Israel's first king at the time, is jealous of his then soldier, a guy named David who would later be king, and he's angry at him despite the fact that David has done nothing wrong. In fact, we're told that Saul is so mad at this guy that he throws a spear trying to like pierce him and pin him to the wall. But David does like the matrix thing, misses the spear, runs for his life, and he's hiding at his house. But at night, Saul then sends a group of hitmen to lie in wait in the dark until morning so that they can kill him. So the context of Psalm 59 and many of the other imprecatory psalms is violent, oppressive plots. That's what's going on. And the psalmist gives us these very vivid descriptions of his enemies. Verse 1, enemies. Verse 1, those who rise against me. Verse 2, those who work evil. Verse 2, bloodthirsty men. Verse 3, they lie in wait for my life. Verse 3, fierce men. Verse 5, those who treacherously plot evil. Verse 6, howling dogs prowling about the city. Verse 7, seven bellowing with their mouths. Okay, so the image is like very vivid here. This is barking bloodthirsty dogs hungry for human life. These are individuals that at some point in their life have forfeited their humanity and now have been taken over by these like animalistic instincts for blood. They're like rabid dogs that are gonna keep coming back for more until they are quite literally put down. So the question for us, because I do believe that the psalm is for us today. The question that we really have to answer, or at least consider, is who are the howling dogs? The psalms of vengeance, like Psalm 59, challenge us to think honestly and openly about who and what truly offends us. Psalms like this ought to challenge our impulse 
for revenge, to discern the difference between what the Bible describes as righteous anger and the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Is this appropriate for me to be outraged about or is this not appropriate for me to be outraged about? And there will be situations in our lives where we are tempted to be outraged when we shouldn't and there are situations where we should be outraged and we will be not. And so Psalm 59 is calling us to openly and honestly ask God to help us to discern the difference between the two. And if we're going to be honest, especially in our time that has literally been called the age of outrage, we need help. We need help. Because we get mad about trivial things and then we turn on our news and we're like, oh, okay, another bombing. The more that we become familiar with psalms of vengeance, and you need to be familiar with the psalms of vengeance, by the way. You don't get to like just flip the page like, okay, Psalm 60. <laughs> the more that we become familiar with psalms of vengeance, what happens is we become more emotionally and relationally mature and equipped. We begin to see a clearer line between that which is worthy of our anger and that which is not, and when and how we ought to pray imprecatory psalms now shameless plug here we've provided you with a daily prayer guide available on our website and on uh, the app please take advantage of it on one of the pages it does list out the various psalms the psalms of vengeance included in that these are not appropriate prayers for someone who has simply hurt your feelings So if you're reading through the psalm and you're like, oh, that person really made me mad. God, bash in their teeth, bring them down, let them fall in slow motion so that the world may see that God is just because they did not text me back. (laughs) Or because they didn't like my photo or because they said something in a tone that I felt triggered by or. These are not appropriate prayers when for when someone hurts your feelings, these are not appropriate prayers. If you feel bothered or feel frustrated or you're disappointed by someone or someone, God forbid, does not meet your expectations, there are going to be a lot of situations where just, quite frankly, this is not the right prayer for you. But then I believe that this is a very appropriate prayer in light of many things that we are constantly seeing happening in our world today. So let's consider a few. For instance... The anti-Asian hate that continues to occur in our nation. When we witness surveillance footage of a man walking up behind an Asian American woman, minding her own business, sucker punching her, and then as she's on the ground proceeding to stomp on her body and head 125 times, our extremely generic prayers for peace are not sufficient. When we see that, we're like, ah, God, just end racism. It's not wrong. It's just not sufficient. But you see, the Bible gives us the right words to offer to God in these sort of situations when we are rightly angered by what we see. And what this psalm and this prayer does is it asks God to be a safety and a refuge to the oppressed. God, be a fortress and a refuge for the vulnerable and the weak and the oppressed. But the psalmist goes on. 
bring down the oppressors in fair but severe judgment so that they may no longer destroy lives any further. Stop them. Bring them down. Put them down if they need to. Sometimes death is not the worst thing. Or as we witness what's happening in Eastern Europe right now, between Russia and Ukraine, yes, we pray for Putin to repent and be forgiven. Yes, we pray for peace and we pray for wisdom for leadership. But we also need to pray prayers like verse 5. Look at me again in verse 5. Speaking to God, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. I wonder how many, like honestly, I wonder how many of us have been praying fierce prayers like that in a season like we're in right now. If there's ever been a situation to pray, verse 5, it's now. Stop them. Bring them to nothing. As we listen intently, we hear the sounds in the psalm and the sounds in our world of howling. But there's another sound that the psalmist invites us to hear, and it's a strange sound, and it's going to be a weird one to explain, but track with me. We also hear the sound of laughing. As David's enemies rise up against him, what does he do? He calls upon God to be his defense. Now, this is really important. There's no, like claiming his rights to defend himself. I'm going to take up the sword and it's my second amendment right and I'm going to defend my life and my family. Instead, he entrusts his life and his future and his family into God's hands, into God's deliverance. Three times in this passage, the psalmist says, God is my fortress. God is my fortress. God is my fortress. He is my defender. And instead of lashing out, he invites God into the battle. Look with me again in verses 4 through 5. Awake, come and meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. The language here of meeting, come and see me and meet me, is used to describe an army coming and joining another army on the battlefield. You know those, those iconic scenes in the movie where there's one army that is outmanned and outnumbered and like outgunned and they're done for and then all of a sudden they look on the horizon and there's their ally army coming and they ride in to save the day. They're met on the battlefield. And that's what the psalmist is inviting God to do. He is sounding the alarm, calling God into the fight. Lord, you are the God of hosts, the commander of the armies of heaven who has promised to fight for your people. And here's an interesting thing. That when God appears on the scene, it says that God laughs. God laughs. Look with me, verses 7 through 8. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with sword in their lips, for who they think will hear us. But you, O oh Lord, what? I'm going to need you guys with me today. I'm the one up here, like, preaching about imprecatory psalms, which, by the way, is not any fun. <laughs> At least do me the favor and be with me. 
You, O oh God, what? Laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Isn't that weird? Isn't that a strange thing to mention? What does it mean that God laughs in situations like these? Now, God laughing does not mean that God is being insensitive toward our pain. The Bible tells us that God is compassionate. He is moved by what hurts us. He cares infinitely more about our hurt and our pain than we ever could imagine. In fact, we see the open heart of God displayed through the tears that Jesus wept. God cares. It's not that God is laughing at our pain. Then what does this mean? It means that God gets the last laugh. The treacherous enemies arrogantly say to themselves, who's going to stand up to us now? Like Goliath, send your best men. What are you going to do? Do you know who we are? Do you know who we represent? We've got the power. Come at us. And in addition to their violence, they taunt and they slander. They're not only seeking to kill David, they're seeking to kill his reputation. They're howling. And the psalmist says that quite literally God finds this kind of arrogance absolutely ridiculous. You think you're so big? You think you're so powerful? You think you hold the keys to the kingdom? You are small. You are nothing. You who mock and laugh at the lives that you destroy, God will make a mockery of you. God will get the last laugh. goes on to say in verse 11, kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. This is the prayer for the enemy's swift downfall. But what he's saying is, Lord, don't let necessarily, don't, don't let this move too quickly towards sudden death. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates this passage, bring them down in slow motion. In other words, don't let them get the easy way out through death. Make sure that they face the reckoning day. Make sure that they are held accountable for others to see. Let them serve as a cautionary tale to the world to not follow in these footsteps. Now, one of the major news stories of the last decade was the trial and then death of an individual named Jeffrey Epstein. I'm sure you've heard that name. Who was then, uh, at the time, responsible for trafficking and sexually abusing countless girls. And he was someone who was allowed to sidestep justice for years and years and even decades because of his wealth and because of its influence and because of his connections to powerful leaders. He was, if there was ever someone in the position to say, who's going to stop me? It was Jeffrey Epstein. But in 2019, his reckoning day was finally upon him. And there was a wealth of evidence against him and a number of elites that he was associated with. But what happened? He died. He was found dead in his jail cell with some suspicious circumstances. And a news article I read in the, I think the weeks following his death said this. 
If Epstein's arrest looked like a chance to finally hold rotten elites to account, his death represents one final escape from accountability. And I remember reading that article and almost having like this visceral reaction and thinking to myself, I think I actually said it out loud as I sat there alone, and I said, no, he has not. No, he hasn't. No, he has not escaped accountability, nor will anyone else. Death may have been one last sidestep from accountability, but what this psalm shows us is that God gets the last laugh. Justice was not escaped. Justice was simply deferred into eternity where Epstein will face his reckoning day. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament would put it this way, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God gets the last laugh. Now let's look finally at this last thing that we, we hear here, and this is equally strange, an equally strange sound to hear in a psalm like this. And what do we hear? Singing. Good job, class. <laughs> Verses 16 through 17. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in my day of distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Now, if you ask me, there is a strange amount of love in a psalm like this. At first glance, it doesn't fit. This isn't a love psalm. This is a vengeance psalm. And David describes these enemies howling by night, but he has determined that he's going to continue singing of God's love and his faithfulness and his refuge in the morning. They will howl, God will laugh, and I'm going to keep on singing. There's a certain sense of confidence in that statement, if you think about it, because they're there to kill him by night, and he's saying, I will still be singing in the morning. I don't know what they're going to do to me. I don't know what kind of harm is going to come upon me. I have no idea what this night is going to bring. But what I do know is that God will be my refuge, that God is my defender, that God is my thrice fortress and in him I'm going to keep praising sounds strangely familiar to a story that we read in the New Testament in the book of Acts as Paul and Silas are on the brunt end of injustice and they're thrown in prison and they're chained to the wall of the dungeon and at midnight what are they doing they're singing why would you sing because apparently they found a way to attach their joy and their hope and their confidence to something outside of their circumstance. The psalm shows us that there are two truths about God that keeps David singing through the night. Two truths that I believe kept Paul and Silas singing through the night. Listen, church, two truths about God that I believe will keep us, reality, singing through our midnight hour as well. And it's God's justice and God's steadfast love. True Ongoing, persevering, buoyant, resilient praise depends on us grasping both of these things 
and holding both in tension. Think about what happens when our idea of God gets a little bit lopsided. A God who simply punishes evil, who's out there just righting every wrong, punishing everyone who's done something wrong, but is void of love, would invoke our fear. He may even invoke our like nervous respect, but he's not going to invoke our joyful praise. I, I, I picture, the, I always think about the people and the soldiers and the civilians that are in the pictures or in the videos behind Kim Jong-un. Where he's just out there sort of parading himself and they are all just nervously praising. But they, you can see it deep in their bones. They are fearful for their lives. It's lip service. A God who exacts revenge but is void of love does not stir joyful praise. And on the other hand, a God who simply lavishes people in love but ignores injustice and is apathetic towards evil. And he's just like, no, I'm choosing to love. I'm Switzerland. I'm the cosmic Switzerland. I don't get involved in these sort of things. May at best invoke sentimental feelings. But probably for the majority of our world will invoke resentments about his indifference. But a God who is both just and a God who is loving stirs our highest praise, steadfast love and justice. And that creates, I know, that creates a tension that's hard to make sense of. It's hard to see how is God both just and loving. And it's a tension that I believe that is absolutely impossible to reconcile without the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the book of Romans chapter 5, this is what we read. But God shows his what? Love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified, there's his justice, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So something that we need to consider here is that in order to rightly discern who our true enemies are, in order for us to rightly discern the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger, before we ever take up prayers like Psalm 59, we have to first, every single one of us, we have to acknowledge that we were all enemies of God. Before we're talking about enemies out there, we have to take a long, honest look at our position before God apart from Jesus Christ. Paul says we were enemies. We were hostile towards God. We were on this side, that side rather, of the vengeance of God. And although we may not have the capability of carrying out some of the horrendous things that we see in the news and in the world, we've all harbored evil intentions. We've all rebelled against God. We've all disobeyed his word. We've all done and said and thought things that are unjust toward other people. And the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ, God's only son, willingly took our place, took the place of both the oppressed 
and the oppressors so that whoever trusts in Jesus could be forgiven, could be redeemed, and could be restored. And as we shine the light of the gospel, as we shine the light of Jesus Christ on this specific psalm, I believe we begin to see something that we may have otherwise missed entirely. And as we listen into these words, I want you to listen in as if Jesus were saying these things from the cross. For instance, how about this line? Kill them not, instead make me totter by your power and bring me down. Or how about this prayer? For the sin of their mouths, the word of their lips, let me be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and the lies that they utter, consume me in wrath. Consume me till I am no more, that they may know that God reigns over all the earth. What is Jesus doing on the cross? He's placing himself between the wrath of God and punishment of oppressors. He's saying, pour it out all on me. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in conclusion, he asks a really important question. A question that, honestly, Christians have been asking for 2,000 years. And it's, can we then pray the imprecatory psalms? And I love his answer. His answer is this. Insofar as we are sinners and express evil thoughts in a prayer of vengeance, we dare not do so. But in as so far as Christ is in us, the Christ who took all the vengeance of God upon himself, who met God's vengeance in our stead, who thus stricken by the wrath of God and in no other way could forgive his enemies who himself suffered the wrath that, is, that his enemies might go free, we too, as members of this Jesus Christ, can pray these psalms through Jesus Christ from the heart of Jesus Christ. Let me put it simply, if you're not in Christ, you probably shouldn't pray this psalm because it's directed back at you. But if you are in Christ, you now have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to pray this psalm through the heart of Christ within you, knowing that God is more capable of discerning your heart than you are yourself. God is able to take these prayers and transform them and now work them in our world against the forces of injustice as we sit back and we look at the world falling apart and going to hell in a handbasket and we ask, what can we do? This psalm beckons Christians and says, pray me, pray me, pray me. Amen? Let's go to the Lord. Lord.